0: of the street. I'm Sachi. I'm Kelly. As we meet new people and discover new places around the world, we encounter countless stories that we feel need to be told. This is one of these stories.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Finley. Uh, I am here today with Kelly and Sachi. Yeah, I'm here for Stories of the Streets.
2: I don't really know Finley, I just met him like last week. But I've heard so much about him and I think half of Montreal knows him because (laughs) most people I talk to know him. And Kelly met him this summer, but then he's also traveled with our other good friend Charles in China. Yeah, I'm just going to moderate here. Because we're also all very sick as we record this. (laughs) So I'm feeling kind of out of it. But we're going to talk to Finley and Kelly about their trip mostly to Singapore. But I also wanted to talk to Finley about the US because he's from Michigan. And he has a lot of interesting stuff to say.
1: So I grew up in a suburb of Detroit called Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. It's about 15, maybe 15, 20 minutes from like the northern border of Detroit and about a half hour from downtown. It's quite interesting growing up there just because it's a very like the suburbs in which I grew up are very like privileged and like very well off and like some of the nicer ones in Michigan and it's quite interesting to have that or interesting and sad to have that like see the contrast between that and then the city of Detroit. And I was talking about it earlier, actually, with uh, Kelly Sachi's other roommate because he was talking about visiting Detroit. But it's interesting because, like, the downtown course, as I've, like, grown up, like, it's gotten more and more developed and, like, nicer. Uh, and I actually had the opportunity two summers ago to intern with the Quicken Loans Community Fund, working in downtown Detroit every day, like, working in, like, the public spaces and, like, activating that, which was really cool to see just, like, how far it's come. Because I do remember a time, like, when there was, like, nothing going on there. But that being said, there are issues just in terms of it's challenging i suppose to live so like live such like a nice like sheltered whatever suburban life and be so close to like uh like some of like the more extreme poverty in the u.s
0: so
2: what was that like in high school did you feel kind of separated from detroit detroit
1: i would say like very much so in high school it's because it started getting nicer like people would go more often but it was still it's inaccessible by public transport well like there is a bus that you can take but it's not like you would never do so, like it's inefficient, it's unaffected, it doesn't run very often, so like the only way to get there is to drive, and so I was only able to start going by myself like when I turned 16 and got my license. And even then, uh, people are not, like parents in the area don't love it, just in the sense I think there are some concerns about like the safety of Detroit, but then it's also like any other big city. It's a big city and you're just sending your child 30 minutes down the freeway to then go like, find parking and drive around, like, a crowded, like, busier city. So I didn't really start going a lot until my senior year. And then I would go more often, but even then, like, when I went, I would really stick to, like, the downtown area. Like, the majority of Detroit I haven't seen, but I'd stick to that downtown area, which was always, like, super fun to, like, hang out in and, like, be around and spend time in. But I will say it's most people growing up in the suburb like growing up certainly, and even I think a lot of my friends in high school, like Detroit is like another world if that makes sense. Like I guess, so it's interesting that De- Detroit is right on the border with Canada and like right across like I think maybe a mile across the river is Windsor, Ontario, and like there's, besides 19-year-olds who, like, are in usually frats and sororities, but even just normal 19-year-olds who want to go over to Windsor and, like, drink and party because they can do so legally versus having to wait until they're 21, uh, besides that, like, very small demographic, there's, like, virtually no awareness. That, like, people know it's there, but it's never discussed, it's never talked about, and no one ever goes to Canada, and I feel as though Detroit is, at least in, like, Bloomfield, where I've grown up, Detroit is treated in a very similar way. People do go there, and especially, I say that, that's changing, but, like... Certainly my childhood, like we would, there was no reason to go. No one ever went, no one ever thought about it. Like even the whole inequality that like sort of is like the foundation of like the Metro Detroit area. There was no, um, what's the word, like no consciousness about that until I got quite a bit older, like in like the later years of high school. But you
2: love a lot of elements of your childhood and teenage years growing up in the burbs in America. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about your childhood and teenage years? Because I know also you went to a pretty unique high school and had a, a typical group of friends and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I like really enjoyed just growing up in like, it was a nice place to grow up. It's like the suburbs, like it's like, obviously designed for people to like raise families. And so it was a really great place to like grow up. Um, and I'd say like my elementary middle school was like very typical, like public school. Go to public schools, but like, whatever, like nothing extraordinary as far as I'm aware. And then my high school was, it's called the International Academy. It is a public school offering like IB, which is like International Baccalaureate, which most schools offering IB, I'd say most, almost every school that offers IB, especially in the States, but even I think around the world, tend to be quite expensive private schools. So I definitely was very fortunate to have that option. And it was sort of regarded in the community as like a higher... Not like a, well, yeah, I guess, like, because it was the IB, like, people viewed it as a lot harder than doing just AP or, like, regular classes, and so it sort of attracted, like, a demographic that was way more, like, academically inclined, uh, and so it was quite nice even, like, the school itself was, like, super, super diverse, which I appreciated in the sense that, like, I'd say probably 50%, like, give or take, was, I'd say around 50% was, like, white, like, Caucasian, um, and like had lived in the Bloomfield area like forever and then the other 50% was like usually second generation Americans like children of immigrants which was super cool just because it allowed for me to like better how's it called like like, just like better understand like different cultures uh in a way that was like I could have friends who like had like the same you know like they've been raised in the states like had like same like cultural backgrounds same like you know thoughts and feelings but then there was another layer of like the culture of their parents that I was really able to better understand by going to high school with them, which was really, really, really cool. Um, yeah, yeah, it was nice. Finley speaks four languages.
2: Yeah. Um, do you think that's why you started getting interested in languages and living abroad? I would say
1: uh, 100%. I was lucky. So I've had Spanish just like since probably kindergarten or first grade. Like for the majority of my life, I've had Spanish classes, but it was never something that I took seriously. I liked it in elementary in school. Most right, states. exactly. Yeah. Like I enjoyed it in elementary school, but it was like I didn't ever think I was gonna be fluent in it. And then I was lucky in high school, it was cool just because so many of the kids in my high school were I'd say most of them were bilingual. There were some who were like trier or multilingual as well, but I'd say a large majority, maybe not a majority, but around fifty percent, like spoke another language, which was just super cool to like be surrounded by that and have so many people who were able to do that. And then I also had my Spanish teachers at that school were like incredible like some of the best teachers I've ever had and so that really helped me to better It just like motivated me to learn Spanish and I saw like becoming fluent in Spanish as something that could be like a reality and then from there I uh, just like I wanted to learn like more languages after that so I like learned French in high school well it was a mix I did some in high school and then since I've moved to Montreal like my French has gotten a lot better Uh, and then it was once I arrived to Montreal I knew I wanted to learn another foreign language and I chose to learn Mandarin and that was partially because I mean, like, a seventh of the world speaks Mandarin. so like, very useful. Um, I also thought it was cool to learn something that wasn't, like, a romance slash even a European language, just because I knew, like, from a linguistic perspective, it would be so, 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 so different from anything I had studied before. And it's proven to be that way, but it's also been really, really interesting and cool. Uh, and then also because, like, a lot of my friends uh, in high school, like, their parents were Chinese immigrants, and so there was, like, an element of, like, wanting to... You know, like I was like, it'd be so cool to like come home and like be able to speak with like my friend's parents like in Mandarin, uh, which I have done, which has been super rewarding as well. So I just like languages. though, as like a way to like better connect with people.
0: Growing up next to Detroit, being such a different city and interesting place to study, did that influence your decision to major in urban studies, which is what we both major in at McGill?
1: Weirdly, not as much as like you would think. I honestly, I it was weird. Like it was since coming to McGill that I like even like I hadn't thought of it as like an option like I wanted to study like international relations international development like at McGill and have since like changed course from that but it was really because of like geography courses that I wanted to study urban studies but then it's since becoming or since like I guess yeah becoming an ur- or choosing to major in urban studies and taking more geography and like architecture and urban planning courses that I've been able to better appreciate Detroit from like an urban planning perspective if that makes sense but like, I just find it, it's interesting to me because like the like principles that are like espoused in like our class like we had an art Kelly and I had like an architecture class like yesterday that we were talking about like principles of like sustainable cities and it was like kind of funny because I was like looking through them and like the suburbs specifically that I grew up in is like the antithesis to all of that um that is to say like the sustainable cities are meant to be like more of a European style like small walkable effect public transit yeah. Um, dense like there's I mean you can go on and on there's so many characteristics of them but Detroit and I mean it makes sense because Detroit was the motor city like it's where Ford Chrysler GM were like created like the first automobiles in the U.S. were mass-produced in Detroit Um, so obviously Detroit and I would argue even more notably the suburbs surrounding it are like incredibly car-centric single-family housing, like, very spread out, not dense at all, not particularly sustainable either in terms of, you know, even, like, everyone has a giant yard and, like, there's, like, no sidewalks and it's impossible to walk and whatever. So, but because of that, though, like, people are very content with that and see no need to change it. Uh, and so, like, like, urban planning or, like, that wasn't even something that was, like, on my radar, but it has been really interesting now that I'm studying it, sort of comparing the principles that I've learned that make a good city versus, (laughs) what is happening, right, and Detroit, and I say Detroit, Detroit's better though because like you do have the downtown core where you can like walk around, and like the suburbs, there's like a suburb near mine, like Birmingham, where you can kind of walk, but like the one I grew up in is like not walkable, public transit accessible, the whole thing, um, but it's interesting because like I still enjoyed life there, like growing up there it was fine, but it was all I knew, and now that I have these two perspectives, it's been interesting kind of going home each time, like with more knowledge about like what makes like a quote unquote good city, and sort of like comparing it, so, Yeah, it's been really interesting.
2: So you guys just went to Singapore with McGill in May for two weeks, right? Do you want to give us like a brief overview of what that was?
0: So we went on a short field course with a a group of urban studies students and the director of the urban studies program at McGill, who is a lady called Dr. Sarah Moser. She does some really fascinating research on new cities in Malaysia and in the Middle East and she did her PhD in Singapore and it, uh, Singapore is just an interesting case study because it's a country that developed very quickly and until recently wasn't an urban area and wasn't a big city and now it's a state of the art city state and Lee Kuan Yew, who is the founding father of Singapore. Kelly's dad is obsessed
2: with, or he has like a lot of role models, but Lee Kuan Yew is a big one. And he'll sit you down in the car and just talk about this genius Lee Kuan Yew. And he's currently reading the biography.
0: Actually, he finished the biography now. He's on another book about Lee Kuan Yew called From Third World to First or something. But that essentially sums up Singapore. Singapore, in the 60s, it was a kampong... Uh, It was just villages, it was no real city, and in a very short amount of time, it's developed into the Singapore you see on TV with the marina-based sands and the, I guess, crazy rich Asians, and there's lots of images we see, but it's a fascinating place. I think it has the highest concentration of millionaires in the world, but it's also a place where not everyone is super rich, and it's an interesting place to study for immigration. It receives a lot of influence from other countries. And obviously it's very small, so just to give a comparison, I think Singapore is four times smaller than Luxembourg, which is very small. And it has ten times as many people, only five million people actually live there. It's incredibly dense, and everything that Singapore does, it's quite a different style of government, and... Um, urban governance in a sense as well because the rapid urbanization has been state driven in Singapore so the government has immense control over land and planning which is unlike any other place I think so 85% of people in Singapore live in government owned housing so a lot of the buildings and areas have been shaped by the government directly and then if they want to change anything the government has the power to knock things down, rebuild things and obviously has a lot of money to do so as well so even something like that was very different and very interesting for a bunch of urban studies students <laughs> to just walk around and see that. It's also famous for its transport systems, the food, the diversity. There's a diverse ethnic makeup. So this, Singapore is seventy percent Chinese, I believe, thirteen percent Malay, seven percent Indian, and there's also a lot of expats and there's also a lot of workers who come from Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Philippines, you name it. So. There were so many things that we covered along this field, and every day we had a different theme and a different location, which always brought up new unexpected discoveries.
2: The food culture seemed amazing, guys. Because, <laughs> well, because Kelly was living in Singapore for two months total, I think, this summer. And I guess most of the food is at hawker centers, which is very cheap kind of street food style. And then there were also Little India um, restaurants and stuff like that and even just the different norms around eating so sharing food and eating at the home I mean Kelly was living with the family there um, but I would also always call you in the morning and you'd get the, <laughs> the New York bun which didn't sound as good but
0: yeah the food culture for me was really an exciting part of my stay uh, even before we went, our professor made a list of all the foods we had to try, and she said these were all die die must try, which is Singlish for you absolutely have to try this. And I we kind of conform to the style of eating. Everyone eats at a round table. Everyone shares the food. There's no such thing really as an individual dish. Everything it's kind of pick and choose, which is really nice. It's very communal and. I really appreciated that style of eating.
1: What was your favorite dish? I don't know. It's like kind of boring. Well, oh, what was the one? There was one, Kelly, do you remember? It was one of the last nights we were in the Hawker Center. It was some, what was it? It was like a roll. What was it called? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Papaya? Yes. We had the papaya that was, I can't even remember what it was. I just remember, Kelly will like know better than I will, but I just remember it was, so good and like so delicious. And it was something that was different too. Maybe Kylie can like explain what it is though.
0: I would describe it as a Chinese burrito. So it's a thin rice pancake and you put cooked turnip inside with peanuts and salad and prawn and spices and I think anything you want. Later in the summer, I went to a papaya party where there was a papaya making station. So that was very cool to see what goes in it. And I got to make my own. But it's yeah, typic- I think it's typically Singaporean, okay. and I would say my favorites. I had a, I had many many good dishes, but the ones I can think of off the top of my head, I really like the prata, the roti prata, the satay, the kway tiao noodles, um, hot pot. I had as well the prawn meat. Honestly, I could go on for a really long time, so I'm going to stop there. It's also so nice
2: because Kelly used to hate spicy food and I would always just like take hot sauce wherever we went. But now she's always so down to go anywhere and it's really changed our food experience in Montreal too. (laughs) Um, So did anything really shock you throughout the trip?
0: I think what shocked me during the trip because it was my first time ever in Singapore and it was the first week there was just the inequality and how I guess going there I watched crazy rich Asians on the plane going there and <laughs> I sort of I knew I had this very like glamorous impression of Singapore and definitely the first night I got there we saw the light show at the Marina Bay Sands and in the gardens by the bay and this fireworks and lights and music and all this stuff and you see huge louis vuitton stores and chanel and everything but during the trip sarah definitely she showed us around parts that i think typically people do not visit or go to and we met a lot of people she knows who live there so Um, Normally when she visits Singapore she stays with her friend and her friend has two helpers who live in the apartment. So that's very normal in Singapore to have sort of full-time domestic workers living with you. They come on a special kind of visa. They normally come from the Philippines and Indonesia. Yeah, so they all get the day off on Sunday and Sarah said... That she had planned on Sunday to meet her two friends, the two helpers, and they took us to where they go every Sunday, this place called Lucky Plaza, which is famously known for, you know, catering to domestic workers, I would say. And that was really an interesting social experience. To give some context, Lucky Plaza is on Orchard Road, which is the most, I think is the most expensive street in Singapore. It's where all the big malls are, there are so many huge Prada stores, Chanel, very high-end. And then in between one luxurious shopping center and another, there's this shopping center called Lucky Plaza and everything there. It's so interesting how catered it was to that group. All the restaurants were Indonesian Filipino food. Everything was significantly cheaper. There were lots of souvenir shops where people buy things to bring back home. There were lots of remittance centers where people send money back home. And there were also so many post offices in Lucky Plaza and a bunch of things that you would not see elsewhere in Singapore. But that just really shocked me, the inequality, because when we talk to them about how much they earn and the kind of life they live, it's really not anything I would have expected to hear about.
1: I'd say in terms of things that shocked me, this is like going to sound bad, but like I had it like, I had gone to China the year before and I think I somehow, I don't know why I thought this, but like I didn't realize I guess how different Singapore would be from China like I knew like culturally they were not the same and I got that but like I was just surprised at the difference between like East Asia versus like Southeast Asia and even coming from Taiwan too because I'd been there the week before and like when I was in Taiwan like Taiwan reminded me a lot of China like those two felt not quite as similar as the states in Canada but like a comparable I mean there's obviously the political situation there and like the tensions between the country that don't exist between the states in Canada but in terms of like like the food they eat is like pretty similar like a lot of the music and movies and shows like a lot of that can overlap whereas Singapore felt like significantly removed from that which was quite shocking not shocking but just different I guess and then I would say another thing honestly the heat was like not something I was like prepared for I think it's like cliche well I don't know like kind of cliche but like I was surprised by how green it is like I don't know I certainly did not think of Singapore like I'm like the whole island's a city like there can't be Green space and They're obviously so there's, strange. but there's like a lot. Like even though there's not a ton of like giant parks where you can like lie out or like things like in Montreal. Like I can't think of like an equivalent of like Royal or like Parc La Fontaine or like the, or like Central Park in New York. You know, like I can't think of like many large spaces like that besides maybe like the Botanical Gardens. But yeah, there's just like kind of like nature everywhere. I feel more like I'm in a city when I'm in like Toronto versus. in Singapore felt less like that just because of like the amount of nature and greenery that there was everywhere.
0: I think I was shocked as well, but by the heat, but in the sense that it makes it impossible to walk anywhere. No one really walks in Singapore. And when I was working there afterwards I would always suggest going out for lunch with my colleagues and no one would ever want to come with me just because it involved a ten minute walk and that just makes it really difficult to do things. So I think even the city's built for cars, and it's very easy to get around on public transport and on buses, but if you want to walk anywhere, cycle anywhere, that's not something that people do. So for half the trip, you were also in Malaysia, right?
1: We were, so <laughs> yeah. we went. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, our prof's research, she kind of researches like all over the world, but um, she speaks Malay Um And Indonesian, and so she spent a lot of time in those two countries, of course. And in Malaysia, in particular, there are a lot of new master plan cities that are kind of building up and there's no real like, there's no equivalent of it in like the Western world, like it really is a phenomenon that's more limited to Latin America, Africa parts of Asia, I say parts of Asia, a lot of Asia, Uh, with Malaysia being one place that has like several of those. So one of the ones that we visited was this place, charming little Sanningchangshi, that is a forest city. It's so hard, it's like Chinese-owned land in Malaysia, and yet the only signs you'll see, it's all like Chinese and English, and like not like there's not a word of malay to be found it's still malaysia but like you go there and like they have duty-free shopping and they have a little like customs post like it was like good old friend Ping is like rolling up in forest city (laughs) it's like great um
0: might i add it's two kilometers away from singapore so i think it's malaysia trying to create sort of a competition in the area and wait yeah when you're sitting in forest city you can see singapore right there So we spent one night in Forest City, which is a lot considering that there is no one there and there is nothing to do there. But it looks like a city, right? So it does in the sense that there are lots of towers and there's a hotel and there is a mall and certain things. But although most of these units and the residential towers and things have been bought, the occupancy rate is really low. So it was built very recently on reclaimed land. And I think in the last five years it was built, which is questionable because i'm pretty sure for safety and any kind of viable building regulations you have to let reclaim land sit for a number of years before singapore building on it yeah so singapore let the marina bay area i think that's sat for 20 years before the marina bay sands and the gardens and everything were built on it so it's quite worrying that forest city was built in such a short amount of time and there are many towers there and when you're driving to it it does look like something but once you get there. As we quickly realized when we tried to find somewhere to get dinner, there is no one there. And we ended up eating in our hotel because there was nowhere else that was open at all. I think that just shows that Far City is really just a place where people invest in property and come and buy a condo and then they leave again. They don't plan on living there. There's no real life there or culture or anything really. So, which makes it a very weird place.
1: But so one of the most, I guess most interesting parts, like the most fun we had in Forest City <laughs> was going to the showroom that they use to like uh, entice and lure potential investors. And so you like walk in and it's this enormous, enormous like hum- almost like atrium-like space, like really like quite large. And they have like a huge model of like what Forest City is going to become. Tons of like these like propaganda, like informational whatever, like about like healthcare in Forest City and retirement and like education. They've like, there's some like, America like St. Patrick something or another, some IB school in the States that is like now partnered with them and like apparently your child will like have a fantastic education if he or she chooses to live in Forest City. Like it's all, it's a lot to take in. Um, <laughs> and so Kelly and I had like the pleasure of going to, I think it was three or four different like show apartments that they have that you can like walk through
0: yeah, so the model condo and the showrooms are all what the finished product will look like. So when you're walking around, you know, the fridge is full, there are post-its on the fridge, you know, it's meant to look like a family is living there, which was very strange because they have all these portraits of people in the apartment, framed photos on the bedside table, except everything is in plastic and all the food is fake and it's, the whole thing is a bit strange. Uh-huh. Well, I just thought it was so funny when we first walked in. This was definitely the busiest place in Forest City. This is where the people were at. So people were coming for this. There's kind of a carpet outside the atrium. It's a nice walkway in. And then beside the model, there's a an area where all the... I guess the salespeople work and there's lots of tables and at each table there was kind of a couple or a person negotiating the sale of their condo or the like purchase of their condo and then next to this area there was this big gong that they ring when they close a the sale <laughs> and it says congratulations welcome to Forest City or something like that and then next to that there was a band playing western music like live music <laughs> it was really a whole performance that was I guess meant to entice you and make you feel like Forest City was you know a nice place to live. Um, so after the trip,
2: did you go back to China?
1: So unfortunately did not got to go back to China. but after the trip I I flew back I had like a like a voyage and a half to like got home and then I was in Montreal for most of the summer. I worked eight weeks at an environmental nonprofit called Sud West. Uh, overall great experience. Um, it was very cool because I was like working all with Quebecers. It was very interesting because there was like some strong like nationalist energy, like separatist, like Sovietunist, whatever, which was like eye opening, uh, if nothing else. Um, but like very cool. I was outside a lot, which was nice. Then I went home for like three weeks, not quite a little less than three weeks. Then I came back to Montreal, and now I'm here. So yeah.
2: And now you're going to Denmark?
1: Yes, I am. So I am doing my fall semester at McGill, and then I'm doing an exchange in Copenhagen, which I'm super excited about. Yeah, don't know what is happening after Copenhagen. I might be doing research for my honors thesis in China. I might be in Europe. I might come back to Montreal. Like, we will see where the stars guide me. I really am no idea. It's exciting, though. And then after that, I... God only know. Well, I'll finish, I have a year left at McGill after that, and then afterwards, like, if I like Europe, I don't mind, I like the idea of, like, living there. Like, I wouldn't mind maybe going to, like, like, potentially living in, like, China or, like, Taiwan or, like, somewhere in Asia for a few years, too. Potentially just even staying in Canada and, like, trying to get, like, permanent residency or, like, citizenship. I don't know. Lots of possibilities, but all good ones, so. Yeah.
2: Well, thanks for coming, Finley. Just met this guy, but I feel like I've known you for
1: years. It's very weird. Thank you to Kelly and Sachi for this wonderful opportunity. Um, I loved, especially with Kelly, like recounting our voyages, but it was cool to like tell Sachi about it too. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed it.
0: We'd be happy to talk about any more (laughs) stories from the trip. We're both working and studying in Burnside, this building on campus at McGill that's kind of falling apart but i love it Mm -hmm. and yeah we literally spend all of our time there (laughs) so find us at the gic at the front desk